Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. On days like today, ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? This country was still great when I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place to fall apart. You cannot flinch. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. There's a thing about the monarchy. We paper over the cracks. It is a duty. Hello and welcome back to the final installment of Still Watching the Crown. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Uh, I am VanityFair.com's deputy editor Katie Rich. I'm Vanity Fair senior features writer Julie Miller. That's right. We're all losing track of our titles. <laughs> we really got to get uh, that brand name in though four yeah. times. Though. Vanity Fair. Go yeah. to VanityFair.com yeah. uh, for all of our <sighs> crown coverage. There's SEO for podcasts. <laughs> Wait, uh, we just. I just realized we made a terrible mistake. What? This whole episode should be in Welsh. Uh, <laughs> I'm Welsh. Do you know that my middle name is Llewellyn? It's true. Um, uh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I am. How's your Welsh accent? Uh, I can say Llewellyn in Welsh. Do you want to hear it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes, Llewellyn. That's true. What? Yep. Really? Yep. Whoa. That's a fact. Welsh is crazy. Welsh is crazy. Uh, we are here to talk about Prince Charles, Prince Anne, Camilla Shand, and Andrew Parker Bowles, our love diamond of season three. Um, and also just like Charles and Anne more generally. We're going to hit on a few, uh, episodes, uh, for this, but, uh, you'll be want, want to be caught up through episode nine, at least. Imbroglio, I think is the name of that episode. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking up through that. Um, but here we mostly are. Mostly six, eight, and nine now. Yes, six, eight, nine. Thank you very much. That is mostly what we are hitting on. Um, to basically like this is our Princess Diana prequel. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> origins. What, what, this, what this season is. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, you know, before we get to the Parker Bowleses, um, let's start with Charles and Anne. We talked about them a bit in our preview episode. Um, our new cast members, Aaron Doherty and Josh O'Connor. Julie did some great interviews with those two actors. So you will hear them throughout this episode. Um, but before we get into that, we just want to get into what it's like to see these royals, these royals we know. Charles, we know him. He's here. He's an adult, uh, in this, in this season. So let me start with Katie who agrees with me that the Welsh episode is really good. Katie, what did you, what did you think of episodes? It's <laughs> not like the hottest take, probably. I don't know. I think, I think maybe some people might think that's a boring episode, but I was like, oh. Well, yeah, it's not, none of the, none of the women are really major figures <laughs> in it, and I feel like they're always the fun ones. Um, and I should say that I somehow skipped the, the Wales episode when I first watched it. I just like jumped right to the Prince Philip Moon episode. Um, so I went back and watched it kind of on its own, and it's this lovely standalone play, which Joanna, I think you pointed out is one of the great assets of the 
Crown is that they can really drill down on a single character or a couple characters in a single episode. Um, and this one also, this is the one that ends with the big confrontation between him and Elizabeth, right? Where he's like, why won't you let me be me? And she's like, you're not you. You're the Crown, right? Yeah. She's like, I read your speech in English, sir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you said. Yeah. So you get these kind of like, you know, you get Charles kind of coming into himself and you see him acting in his, uh, in his place at Cambridge, which is great. And then he develops this relationship with this tutor in Wales and you really see him being a person and this really nice kid who like is a royal and is complicated in that way and as we know will do some worse things in his life but kind of wants to be a nice and studious person and then he has this conversation with his mother and you kind of start to see Elizabeth as a villain and one of the things that I've wondered about the crown as a whole is if it's going to lean into her as this much more difficult figure as she gets older. I mean, Peter Morgan wrote The Queen, which really gets into that in a lot of ways. And I feel like that scene might be the crux of that. That might be where we start to watch Elizabeth be the center of the show, but maybe not the moral uh, fulcrum of it. Um, Richard, I know that you had talked previously about Josh O'Connor. Um, what did you think of him uh, in this role in this season and the various things that were asked of him this year? I mean, I think he's really great in 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 this season i think he um you know he captures he humanizes someone who i've never really thought of i haven't really thought of charles's humanity beyond that of how it relates to diana's and harry and williams um and and i think that so it's 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 i guess good to see this this younger version of him that 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 is is not yet sort of hardened by duty and and all that stuff the way you know his mother has been uh, it's sad, you know. I think I really like the scene where he goes to the Welsh professor's house, and um, and, uh, and and the wife is remarking later, "Did you see his face when we were putting the kid to bed?" He'd like never seen a parent interact with a child that way. I thought that that spoke really interesting volumes about. I thought that was like a, a keen bit of psychological kind of exposition and 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 on, on Peter Morgan's part. What I think that some people might take issue with that I did a little bit just because it's the Crown again being a little bit like making some false comparisons like comparing like the struggle for welsh independence to the prince of england or the of britain like being like mom's mean to me is like maybe <laughs> like not doesn't make that much sense it's like they didn't like charles they didn't like flood your town and like take you from your ancestral homeland they're, they're you know like so let's <laughs> let's relax a little bit but like but you know again o'connor's great in it and then i think that when we see him in later episodes uh meet Camilla it's it's so fascinating to watch him realize that much like Wallace Simpson uh you know warns him that his family is going to do to him exactly what they've done in the past to other people even though they claim to be better than that to have learned the error of their ways to believe in love um i think him realizing that like he's part of a really ruthless situation uh is played really well by by Josh O'Connor the last thing I'll say in praise of, of this guy and his performance here is the physicality that he does, having seen Josh O'Connor and the other things. Like, that, you know, they didn't have to give him Prince Charles ears. He has Prince Charles ears. So that was like, he already had that in his favor. Like, add the deep part uh, on his hair and you're like, you're there. You're like, no, you're like 60% of the way there. But the thing that he does this thing with his head where he holds his head to the side almost the entire season. Um, and it's just this like choice that he makes. And it's very like, uh, passive, submissive, uh, young. Um, and it is also something that Charles does. Um, the real Charles. And so I just thought that that was a really good embodiment of, of that character and his characteristics. Um, 
And then let's hop over really quickly to uh, Julie Miller's new favorite royal. Um, and I just want to say that I love the introduction of her, which is Philip on the PA going, sweetie, sweetie. <laughs> and then Elizabeth going like, oh, no, it's not me. I'm cabbage. <laughs> and like, oh, it's Anne. <laughs> um, and at first you're like, what is Philip up to now? And then you're like, oh, no, it's his daughter who he actually really likes. Um, so, Julie, what, what do you think of, of Aaron Doherty and the introduction of, of Princess Anne? I think it's incredible because it's not only an introduction to Aaron Doherty for me, but it is to Princess Anne. I didn't know that much about her, just I had seen the photos of her more recently, but she is this kind of fully formed woman almost in a way. It doesn't seem Charles, doesn't seem like a fully, she just has this confidence that he doesn't quite have. She's naturally suspicious. She's kind of stubborn like her father, uh, I I love her sense of humor. I loved reading about her in real life and just seeing that she she was raised by a Scottish nanny, so she's very frugal. She wears the same clothes for years and years. I don't know why this is relevant, but um I I just I enjoyed her. I I love she said that her idea of hell is lying around on a beach somewhere in the sun. Same. I, just, I like this character. <laughs> same. Same. Um, yeah, so inspired by your conversation with Aaron Doherty, um, I watched this interview that Princess Anne, uh, gave, um, to, it's, it's Michael Parkinson, right? Is who's interviewing yes. her. And you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, we couldn't get the audio for, uh, rights reasons, but you might want to, if you like this fictional version of, of Princess Anne, you might want to watch these YouTube videos. She's amazing. And to your point about frugality, one of my favorite quips that she gives is he's like, you know, the press was giving you a hard time for wearing the same suit uh, you wore back in 1972. And she just goes, Oh, it's a good deal older than that. <laughs> you know, like, just like, who cares? I don't care. Um, I just, I really, really like her. Um, and I like Erin Doherty a lot as her. Um, she nails her voice perfectly. So let's go to your conversation with Erin Doherty and people can hear how different the actress herself sounds from, uh, the royal that she's portraying. <laughs> I don't think any people of my generation knew anything about her. Like when I got the phone call from my agent, I genuinely was, I was on the phone to her, kind of kind of wondering who we were talking about. Like I just didn't really, I didn't know she existed. Like it, she, but I think that's a conscious choice on her part, which tells you a lot about her. But she is this kind of phenomenal human. Like I genuinely am so excited for people to meet her in a way, because I don't think, I don't think many people really really will guess that that's coming and she genuinely is like I've fallen in love with her she genuinely is that amazing she's just kind of this she's just about truth if I'm honest like I think she literally she just wants to tell people what her opinion is I really lucked out I think me and Josh did with Charles and Anne in the sense that there is so much footage of them when they're younger you get to give them heart in a way that I hope I hope was truly there but it's also it's also a, a a show, but I genuinely do think she was that amazing. I've fallen in love with her. I think she's wicked. What fascinated me and shocked me the most about her is that she was put under so much scrutiny physically, in particularly physically about her body when she was a teenager. Like, oh, really? There were tabloids about her oh. being, yeah, like, and it, yeah, it's really sad but that you just accept it because she's in the royal family, so everyone's allowed to comment. But she would have been this really, really young, fragile teenager 
And people were like, yeah, there were like things in the newspaper about her being frumpy and poor Anne and things like that. And I just think that kind of surprises me the most about her, that she managed to go through that at such a young, young age and still come out really determined to be honest and open with people. But I think that's where the armour came from because she was subject to such pressurised, this pressurised environment of, of people commenting on her that I think she kind of realised, okay, I'm going to have to keep people at a distance. And that is where her anonymity comes from, I think, with the press in particular. I love the relationship between Anne and Charles, especially towards the end of the season of The Crown. Um, it's beautiful. I, yeah, again, I don't think many people will expect it. Right. But it also, it humanizes them in such a beautiful, glorious way because ultimately, you're just watching a brother and sister help each other through a rough situation. If that is what happened with her and Charles, but I'd like to think... I genuinely do believe that they would have supported each other. Well, I'm always so fascinated by the etiquette of these royals. And I know that the crown, of course, has these amazing advisors on set. What were kind of some of the mannerisms that were hardest for you to learn or get used to? There's a guy on set called Major David, who is incredible. <laughs> and he, like, he's like there just overseeing the whole thing, letting you know if you're ever doing something wrong. And he was there watching us have this recourse meal. And the hardest thing for me is eating because I don't know. I don't, it's just, it doesn't occur to me to think about my knife and fork in any other way. But right. there's other ways to, I don't know, it's something about the angle with your hand or something if you're using a spoon that you have to abide by, which blows my mind. <laughs> also, the fact that like, if you're having a drink, like you have to put it down straight away and not allowed to just hold a glass in your hand, which I do all the time. Oh, I just really? find myself holding a glass. I don't know if it's a nervous thing yet. So I got I kept getting told off of that. <laughs> which freaked me out. Yeah, it's stuff like that. Like you'd never think about it, but there's like rules for everything. If you were to meet Anne, what would you say to her? Or what would you ask her? I I don't even know I I feel like I would go absolutely mental if I didn't think that <laughs> I don't know. Like I just wanna be like around her. I wanna just I, I, don't, I know that it would never happen because she's a royal and I don't, she would never just relax if we could have a natural conversation. But I'd, I'd hope that I'd be able to just get her to a place where we could relax and just, just talk about her family because I find them fascinating and what her perspective growing up was like. Because that's kind of where I picked her up from as a, as a character. So that's where my fascination is. Like her relationship with her mom and her dad, like I just find, I find that the most fascinating. I, I'd want to know, I'd want to know everything. Right. Did you speak to anyone, any kind of mutual acquaintances, anyone who knew her? No, like I really didn't. And in a way, I'm quite glad for it because, like I say, there came a point when I had to go, okay, I'm not trying to be the real Princess Anne. I'm definitely going to do my version. And so I think, yeah, it, I, I, I'm really glad that I actually didn't have any close connection or found a way to find one. Right. I'm, I, yeah. It makes me just rest a little easier at night knowing that there's nothing to worry about. It's Erin Doherty's version of Princess Anne. So, yeah, that was, that was a relief in a way. So that let's get into, uh, you know, we get these introductions of Anne and Charles, uh, and then we get into the real juice of what happened in their love lives, which is this shocking to me revelation that 
not only did Charles date Camilla long ago, which I knew, but Anne dated Andrew Parker Bowles, which uh, those of us who know Camilla were like, wait, that's going to be Camilla's husband. I know that double barrel name. Um, so, so Julie, tell us about this love diamond and what really happened there. So Andrew Parker Bowles and Camilla began dating in the mid-1960s when he was 25. She was 17. And in this love diamond, to me, based on my research, it seems Andrew was holding all the power here. He was one of the most eligible bachelors in British aristocracy. He was handsome. He was incredibly charming. He was a soldier with the household cavalry. He had served as a page in Queen Elizabeth's coronation, and he was a favorite of the Queen Mother. So all the ladies wanted to date Andrew. Camilla was smart, confident, and she just kind of set her sights. She was going to date Andrew no matter what. So throughout their courtship, she was very much aware of the fact that he was dating other women, but she wasn't going to let go. So even when he started having this little dalliance maybe with Anne, she was still in it to win it. And was he, was, was her state, how is she viewed like in terms of like her station in like British aristocracy? She isn't as, uh, her, what, what would you say? Her bloodline is her standing desired. <laughs> right. Right. Plus she was all, still of that world, but not quite. Yeah. She was not deemed aristocratic enough, but right. not only that, she had to have the illusion of maybe being a virgin at the mm-hmm. time when Charles was getting married, and she didn't have that. She had dated someone else before Andrew, and then she had had this long, intense relationship with him. So she was not going to be good stock. Oh, <laughs> yikes. Um, <laughs> say that. She was not going to be a good match. She was yeah. not going to be a good match. And Lord Mountbatten, who was kind of Charles's mentor in all things dating famously told charles to sow his oats during this period to get to know a lot of girls he provided his estate as kind of a safe place (gasps) where charles and camilla could meet up uh lord mountbatten did notify the queen that your son is dating this woman who's also involved with uh andrew and this isn't really a good look from what i've seen though the royal parents didn't intervene the parents that did intervene were Andrew and Camilla's fathers, who after seven years essentially told Andrew, you need to propose. He didn't propose. So there's a pretty well-circulated report that their fathers sent in an engagement notice to the papers <gasps> saying Whoa. that Andrew and Camilla were engaged. And then after that, Andrew's hand was forced and he had to propose. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, These so Katie, <laughs> I, I want to. You have some very strong Camilla feelings, um, and I I might share them. So I want to hear what you think of how this season treated Camilla, who will be, you know, is currently married to Charles, will be a fixture in the royal family going forward. So, uh, what were your feelings on on Camilla's uh, introduction here? Yeah, I think my problem might mostly just be for the amount of time that goes into this episode. And I get the reasons for it. Like, there isn't a lot we know for sure about what was going on between her and Andrew and Charles. And like, you know, there are, they are real people. You don't want to defame them in any way. And I think Emerald Fennel has a couple scenes where she really stands out and you kind of get a sense of personality from her. But we just don't 
get that much of a sense of why she and Charles are so, or why Charles and so is so in love with her and why she maybe is going back to Andrew in the end. Um, there's this one scene where they're kind of having dinner at the palace and he plays this weird prank on her that so you totally get. It's really strange. I mean, Charles might be a weird guy and like it works for her. So maybe that's something about their shared sense of humor, but it didn't totally land that well as showing their chemistry. I think Joanna, you pointed out that uh, Elizabeth and Porchy, her um, master of horses or whatever his title is, like they have more chemistry than Charles and Camilla do. Um, and I think you need to understand both why Charles loves her so much and who she is to to set up this romance that is both like sweet because they are always committed to each other and really tragic because they could just were having affairs and ruined Charles's marriage to Diana. Um, and I feel like they missed this opportunity to set her up in this important way because we're going to meet Diana. We're probably going to like her because she's such a likable person. Um, but Camilla is who he winds up with in the end. So she's such a major part of the story and it felt like they kind of got her out of the way way too fast. Not to sound like a, a like a, a grossy, but like I think part of part of the the issue with the crown sometimes, and this is also true of Julian Fellow stuff, is like they're so scared of sex, and especially when talking about the royals, like they they did a weird Margaret sex scene last year, sort of with Matthew Good, that was like mm-hmm. so like I yeah. you know I should be careful what I wish for, but like I feel like a crucial thing considering they're young people is like maybe we don't just like have them kind of go on one date and then a few scenes later they're like in bed together like like after like post coital it's like that feels like that would be a significant sort of thing for at least Charles um not that like sex is the end all and be all of it but i agree with you Katie that we just need more uh texture and and more what this really meant other like was it was it a big deal because it was charles's first or was it a big deal because it was camilla in particular or like both or whatever you know so i just wanted a little bit more substance to that just so we'll feel it lingering as the show goes on that said uh i do have one other critique of this which is you know i'm just so sick of these boring english names i mean emerald fennel what a dull dull (laughs) that's a perfect name um i will say that like emerald fennel who also by the way uh wrote uh killing you season two uh she is a multi-hyphenate actor writer showrunner um she there is that scene of her like camilla in the bath which is like closer to sex than we've seen anywhere else this season so uh that's kind of like the closest we get but yeah to me it feels because i don't think they do a great job establishing who camilla is um but on the beyond the haircut um like i i'm like is it any port in a storm for for charles is he so miserable that it's like anyone who looks in his direction he's like yes please because i don't i don't really understand their connection but i believe the heartbreak because i believe that like josh o'connor's selling that he's upset but i just don't understand why charles is so interested in her in the first place do you have any thoughts on that uh julie Yes. So they didn't really stick the landing to me on this, just because Camilla, when you read about the relationship on paper, you totally understand why Charles was attracted to her. She was this intent and is, but especially at that period of time, this intensely warm, maternal, laughing creature with enormous sex appeal, said a family friend, Annabelle Goldsmith, um, another friend, Patrick Beresford said whenever Camilla walked into the room, your spirits rise because you are knowing to have, you know, you are going to have a laugh. So for Charles, this young prince with kind of downbeat tendencies and a mother whose constitutional calling requires her to be distant and cold, you can understand why he would be attracted to someone who was both maternal, laughing, put him at ease, cared about his comfort 
And I don't think that really came across. Um, also at this period, when Charles and Camilla really hit it off, this is uh, six years into Camilla and Andrew's relationship, and Andrew has been dispatched to Northern Ireland and Cyprus for six months of service. So Camilla's kind of freed up to entertain a new guy. Did that come across in the episode? Mm-mm, Maybe I not really. That. He, uh, for me, Andrew just kind of like was there, and then he wasn't, and then he was back again, and I wasn't really sure of the mechanics behind that. So that makes more sense. Yeah. Yes, and to, to anyone who knew um, Camilla and Charles at the time, they kind of said that Charles lost his heart to Camilla almost at once. It was immediate. He loved that she didn't take herself too seriously, that she had this down-to-earth irreverence that she was affectionate, unassuming. She didn't care too much about fashion, which if that is that what it takes to marry a future king, because <laughs> I am around. Um, but there were, there were all these reasons that I guess they just, I don't know, was Peter Morgan just hoping the chemistry would take off? I mean, like, I feel, I you know, like, Emerald Fennel is good casting for, like, warm maternal yet very sexy like i think she hits all those notes but like i maybe we just needed like an entire camilla episode i think she deserves one and it just felt like she got half an episode basically and and then and then her phone call reasoning for why she was marrying andrew and not him um like i believe that she wanted to marry andrew that seems sort of clear but then i think she would have been more straightforward and less like oh i don't know don't believe everything you hear bye going to get married like i didn't it didn't it didn't work for me at all um katie 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 can you tell our listeners about the uh the like princess diana easter egg that i missed uh in oh. the season? <laughs> and i missed it until you pointed out that i had mentioned it no like they um so this is the other thing that confuses me is when Anne kind of suggested charles that if he gets involved with camilla there will be three people in the relationship like i didn't really know if we were supposed to think that camilla and andrew had like a plot going on here where they were gonna like both ingratiate themselves into the royal family like there was this like weird coup implied that didn't understand um but these egg is that in an interview that princess diana gave as her relationship with charles was um breaking up she said there were three people in her relationship meaning her and charles and camilla so that really kind of comes back around on charles yeah some people theorize that camilla took up with charles as kind of uh punishment because andrew took up with anne and that was sort of that was sort of the implication in that like first bart like her introduction so promising she like swans in in this super shirt like short skirt and Andrew's like, you're not ready. And she's like, oh, I'm not going with you. Like, I'm going to punish you. Here's this. He, he He's like, this guy shows up. She's like, don't worry about it. I'm out of here. And you're like, who's this broad? I like her. I want to know more about her. And then it just sort of like evaporates. And um, so like, I would, I would believe that plot. I would believe like Camilla used dating a prick. Can you imagine dating the heir to the throne? Uh, as the ultimate, like, oh, you don't dump me, I dump you, buddy. Uh, and, you know, and then getting to marry Andrew after that, but then maybe like seeing something in Charles that she's not getting from Andrew and wanting to come back to that eventually. Like, that all makes sense to me. It's just not what they served me in this season. I think, I think the problem with that, or, or, or what, the, what that is, is that Peter Morgan, the Crown in general, understands that some people are like interested in that. The show kind of isn't in a way 
Like it's a lot of like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They got together, but then let's go talk about what this meant in terms of the crown and like what the weight of rule and all this stuff. And it's like <laughs> that's why this guy wrote a play called The Audience, like you mentioned, Katie, in another episode, where it's just the Queen talking to seven, eight different nine prime ministers. It's like whoop de doo. That sounds you know like like where's the where's the the juice? And I think this show is reticent to give us that. And um, I find that that especially now that we're we're entering in a period of time when the royal family was far less interesting for its governance as it was for its like behind the you know closed doors romantic intrigue and whatnot uh that's going to be a problem for the show like how are they going to handle diana is gonna be like oh and here's diana spencer anyway back to the falkland island war like you know <laughs> like i just i don't know how that's going to work and it makes me a little nervous to be honest but the ending of this diamond is so devastating for charles as well for andrew and Anne, they kind of both knew that the relationship could never go far because andrew was roman catholic the 1701 Act of Succession forbade heirs to the throne from marrying Roman Catholics. So Ugh. from the start, they knew that nothing could come of this. And she eventually marries Mark Phillips. Charles is blindsided by the news that Camilla is going to marry Andrew. And the same year that he loses Camilla to Andrew, his closest female friend, his sister also gets married. So he loses all, all three other members parts the diamond marry off within a span of a few months and that sends charles into this again setting up the diana thing this kind of uh phase of sadness and desperation and he feels like he's going to be the last person to be married off and isn't sure whether there will be anyone for him and he has to wait a few more years until diana because she was that was what 81 80? yes. 81's when they got married yeah, yeah. yeah and they met she was so young when they met 19. so at this point she's like a teenager yeah i was watching their like engagement interview and first of all she's like they're like, oh, are you, are you ready to like be in the family? She's like, well, I've had six months of dating Charles, so I'm totally ready. And I was like, oh God. And then she's, and then they're like, she's 19. I was like, oh God. Uh, so yeah, I mean, next season's going to be lit, but, um, but this, these relationships are so incestuous. When Camilla and Andrew had their first son, they asked Prince Charles to be the godfather and he accepted. Yikes. Uh, no, yeah. So next season we're going to get, uh, presumably the introduction of Anne's husband as well, but I just, I really love um, every like every scene could have used more and being like droll and dry um, and uh, sarcastic with our family. I really, really enjoyed her. So uh, hopefully we get more of her next season and more Josh O'Connor. Here is Julie's conversation with Josh O'Connor. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters and hosts of the show. Love to see it. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Well, I imagine Prince Charles is someone who's been on your radar for a very long time. So how daunting and intimidating was it to get this role? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? So kind of, he's been like so present in, um, uh, in our sort of public consciousness for, for, so, for so long. But uh, yeah, it's weird to play him. But I sort of loved every minute of it, to be honest. And 
have great affection for him now. Well, what were kind of more of the surprising revelations you came across in doing your research? I suppose the kind of more interesting things that surprised me are, you know, how much he's actually done and how, how ahead of his time he was with certain things. You know, he Prince Charles himself was talking about climate change in the 70s and, and 80s, and we kind of, I guess our response to him was buffoon, I guess, but believed in these kind of mythical ideas. And, um, but now we know, you know, he was right and he was ahead of his time. I had never really paid attention to his physicality that much, but kind of seeing you on screen, I don't know what the little things were that you were doing, but you just embodied him so much. Can you talk a little bit about studying that, those mannerisms, those tics, the posture? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, we, the crown has been well set up for a little while now. There's already a great system in place. You know, we had, um, we had a brilliant Polly Bennett who works with us on, on movement and how, how we hold our bodies and how kind of the, the body is arched over for Charles, for instance, his neck seems to pop out. So there were details like that. It was kind of, we were really, you know, looked after. Um, and then, you know, the biggest thing was actually letting it go after that, having done all that work, was actually, you know, letting all that go and trying to discover uh, a new character, something that felt fresh and away from the real Prince Charles. You know, all the kind of small ticks and things like that, just so that audiences feel that they can recognize this character, if you know what I mean. I was going to ask you about kind of the true life storylines behind some of the episodes, like the Wales episode and uh, the Camilla episode. Is there a point, though, where you have to let go of the real life person and just kind of commit yourself to doing your own invention of Charles? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, there's a, a, um, a great film I saw years ago called I'm Not There, which is about Bob Dylan. And, um, and I remember when, when I was offered this role, I remember looking back, thinking back, and I was thinking, what are the great performances in my memory of people that are real and exist? You know, what are the performances um, out there of real people and like you know Whacking Phoenix playing Johnny Cash or um, Michael Sheen playing uh, Frost David Frost or Michael you know Michael Sheen's done a few of them and they're always brilliant um, but for me that some of the most impactful performances have been from that film I'm Not There where it was like eight actors playing Bob Dylan but just eight different versions of Bob Dylan. Um, and you had like you know a young black boy playing um, the young the, the kind of Woody Guthrie influenced Dylan. Then you had um, uh, Kate Blanchett playing the kind of Bob Dylan in the public eye. He had all these different Heath Ledger was in it, Ben Whishaw. And what I loved about it is it, it wasn't a recognisable Bob Dylan. It wasn't Bob Dylan as we've seen him before. And whilst you know we have a responsibility to do that a little bit in the crowd. I was just more interested in trying to let go of that and trying to offer what what I believe to be interesting, which is what Prince Charles is like behind the closed doors. You know, we have a different public persona, and I know that as an actor who, I guess, has some sort of experience of being in the public eye, you know, that what, the way I speak to uh, a journalist at a premiere or um, the way I speak to, um, you know, speak in public at events, 
is very different to how I might speak to my mother or my partner or do do, do you see what I mean so that was kind of the interesting thing to me I think but you had so many amazing scenes and storylines I'm curious what your favorite was and was there one that was most nerve-wracking that you were kind of fearing the most um yeah to be honest (laughs) might surprise you that one of my favorite scenes to play was I had two one was uh, the big scene at the end of episode six between myself and Olivia um, the Queen and Charles, in which she says, "You, um, as soon as you you can't express an opinion, as soon as you express an opinion, you have declared a position, um, and it's the one thing we can't do." And I love that scene, and it ends with her saying, "Because no one wants to hear it." Um, this season, we see Charles have so many human moments, and it is kind of surprising to see a figure like that who's been. He, recognizable, of course, but so distant, um, such a public figure. Mm. Was there one moment that you kind of empathized with him most? The, Mike, I have huge empathy for him in the scene with Camilla. In which he describes his, he said, until my mother dies, I cannot be fully alive. And I think that that to me was like this profound um, statement this huge kind of major conflict he has where, you know, he, he's, a, he's in waiting to be the king and he has to, I guess, navigate that. That's kind of a huge, huge thing. Um, so, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And, and, um, and I think, yeah, that was my big moment of sympathy for him. Have you fantasized about what if you were to, like, bump into him when you were out and about, what you might say? The dream would be that if I ever met him, he would say, thank you so much, you did a great job, Uh, let's be friends. (laughs) Um, But I don't know whether that would ever happen. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I I haven't thought too much about it. I I really, I have so much sympathy for him, and I'm really quite fond of him, actually. And so I certainly would love to meet him one day, and I hope that he likes the show. But I imagine he doesn't watch it. So, in your fantasy fiction version, what do you and Charles do together as friends? I reckon we, because now that I've I learned how to play polo for this job, and I would love to go and have like a lesson of polo with him. That would be the dream. I'm sure he has no time to teach me polo, but it would be quite fun. That's such a good answer. Um, And I've seen some photos, paparazzi photos, from shooting season four, um, and we know that Diana's introduced. Is there anything you can say about that relationship that you get to play out, especially having acted opposite Camilla? Um, Yeah, I mean, we all know what happens. (laughs) I think... um, uh, it's all there written in history but um, yeah I mean it's we're, yeah, we're well and well and truly underway on team board um, Emma Corrin is doing an incredible job and is called a kind of spookily spitting image of her in real life let alone um, acting um, so that's kind of strange uh, no I love yeah it's a kind of one of the great stories of our time, I guess. So, and that was one of the biggest attractions of playing Prince Charles was to tell that story and what that might be. But again, as I say, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're sort of discovering and creating something new. And, 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 uh, and so, yeah, it's really, it's been really cool. 
Okay, Josh. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's been nice talking to you. I, you. I really thank enjoyed the season. All right, that's it. We did it. We managed to do three episodes of The Crown without centering a single one on Elizabeth. Good job, us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and next season, things are going to get juicy if uh, The Crown can possibly stomach all the juice. Uh, Richard, until... <laughs> that was kind of gross somehow. Sorry. So, Richard, until... until uh, season four of the crown where can people find you uh i don't know like whispering sex into peter morgan's ear (laughs) creepily uh uh no i'll be not doing that i promise uh i'll just be tweeting like a good person uh, at rylaws and writing for vf.com and julie miller on twitter at julie w miller and on vanityfair.com and katie rich uh on vanityfair.com and on twitter at katie rich k-a-t-e-y-r-i-c-h you can find me on Twitter at Justice Worker Miller. You can find me on VanityFair.com. And I will see you, listeners. I will hear you. I will talk to you uh, about The Mandalorian uh, next time you hear my voice. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>